Live from the city that made space famous, the Bayou City, the fourth largest city in America, a place we all love to call home, Houston, Texas. This is Astro Talk. Now, your host, Mike Acosta and Gerald Sanchez. From the studios at Capismo Communications in Houston, Texas, welcome to Astro Talk, presented by Houston City Beat. This is Mike Acosta along with Gerald Sanchez, and welcome on into another exciting episode of Astro Talk. Gerald, we have a great conversation with a Houston baseball legend today. I am in the mood to talk pitching. Oh, yes. And, you know, I pitched for a while, you know, in Little League and some in high school. You know, I had a immaculate inning in high school. Really? I did. Nine pitches, all swinging strikes. It was high school. But... Immaculate inning is an immaculate inning. I did it, and I'm really proud of it. And I love pitching. Pitching is a the first line of defense in baseball, and we have a very special guest here who has had a longtime impact with the Astros here in Houston, Larry Durker. Debuted as an 18-year-older for the Colt 45s. His first strikeout was Willie Mays, and he was a part of those early Astros teams. And the interesting thing that I saw looking back at Dirk's career, he had 20 complete games in 1969, and 20 complete games didn't even lead the league. No, and that's just a different time. I mean, you, you, we'll get into it. We're going to ask him about that, how pitching has changed, you know, with the expansion that we saw in the 90s. You know, it's pitching changed forever. And, you know, you had the, the short reliever, the, the, the specialist come in in the bullpen, and it's just a different game now. But Larry Durker brings a huge, immense story to our podcast today. We're going to talk about pitching. We'll also talk about his broadcast career and then his managerial career with the Astros. He has over 40 years of experience with this Houston franchise. I think we should get right to it. And we will. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have a conversation with Larry Durker coming up on Astro Talk. Take your business to higher ground with Capismo Communications. Capismo provides phone systems, IT management, cloud services, cabling infrastructure, internet connectivity, and podcast studio services. All the communications your business needs to be successful. Get unprecedented knowledge and impeccable reliability with Capismo Communications. Visit capismo.com. Make sure to visit the Houston City Beat store today on HoustonCityBeat.com. Find exclusive products that'll kick your Houston pride into gear. Check out the latest releases and come back often to see the latest editions. Just go to HoustonCityBeat.com and click on HCB store on the menu. Shop the Houston City Beat store today because only Hugh can wear it so well. You're listening to Astro Talk with Mike Acosta and Gerald Sanchez. We're back from the studios at Capismo Communications here in Houston, Texas. Welcome back to Astro Talk, presented by Houston City Beat. Mike Acosta and Gerald Sanchez along here with you. We were talking about it earlier. A big right-handed pitcher from 1964 to 1976. 40 years Plus, with the Houston Astros franchise, pitcher, front office, broadcaster, field manager, and into the Team Hall of Fame. We're talking about none other 
than Larry Durker. Larry, welcome to Astro Talk. Well, it's great to be with you guys, but with all of that stuff you just covered, it makes me feel old. <laughs> it's called it's called well seasoned you're well seasoned we are all well seasoned here and uh larry we're thrilled to have you here today we want to just have this this conversation with you we want to talk about your career there you have what i would consider a volume encyclopedia type of baseball career uh because you've done it all right yes i've done everything uh that I could think of except the one thing I tried to avoid, which is to work in the accounting office. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we could have changed some of the uh, the contract numbers in, if you had been uh, in the well, accounting office, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, Larry, you made your debut. You were with the Colt 45s. You come from California, and you, and you head over to Texas. You make your debut on your 18th birthday in September of 1964. Talk about that. I mean, you had some very big strikeouts there. As soon as you had your first time up in the big leagues, and and who did you strike out? Well, the first guy was Willie Mays. Uh, it was against the Giants, and uh, now that I, I have more experience and see how pennant races go, I'm surprised that the other contenders around the league didn't squawk about that because a lot of times when teams are driving towards a playoff spot, they don't appreciate a rookie call-up pitching against one of their contenders. But I didn't hear anything about that, and uh, I was a little wild, and I was throwing hard. I got the, Somehow I got a strike on Willie, and then I threw the changeup for some reason. It was my worst pitch, and he hit it about 450 feet, but it was foul. Then I threw a slider, and it, and it started right at him, it broke over the inside corner, and he didn't want any part of that. He was bailing. So <clears throat> it was called strike three, and it was quite a thrill. And he hit it 450 feet foul. That was the, the key term there, right? Mays that, hitting, that Mays hitting it, a yeah. ball that far is, is, wasn't uh, too uncommon, but the key word was foul. Yes. Loud strike. Larry, did you know anything, or did you have you ever been to Texas before you pitched in Houston in your Major League debut? No, I, I hadn't been to... Uh, Texas, I didn't really know what to expect. It was just so exciting to be a part of a major league team. And at first, uh, I think they just wanted to see me throw because I had a good year in what was like an instruction league down in Cocoa, Florida, where we had our spring training headquarters. I had a good year down there and had a lot of strikeouts. And after I threw a few times in the bullpen, the, it was probably Bill Giles. I think Bill Giles was in charge of PR for the Astros back then, Colt 45s and Astros. His dad was the president of the uh, National League, Warren Giles. And Bill ended up uh, an owner of the Phillies. I think he probably looked down and saw that I was going to have a birthday on September 22nd and thought it might be a good promotion because the Astros were an expansion team and they were probably 30 or 40 games out. So it's kind of hard to draw in September. Uh, once the kids go back to school, if, if you're not in contention. And so they asked um, Gary Kraft, who was the manager, if he would be willing to start me, and he said he would. So he put me on the roster, and I got to pitch that game against the Giants, which, uh, you know, it also had the downside. Uh, expansion teams often don't have the most robust hitting attacks, and in that game we scored no runs. And Orlando Cepeda hit a, a two-run homer off me, in the second inning, and I got the loss. 
So welcome to Expansion Baseball. Anyway, uh, then there was a road trip to uh, San Francisco and L.A. to end the season, and uh, I got to go and pitch out of the bullpen, so I got to pitch in Candlestick Park one game against the Giants and in Los Angeles uh, against the Dodgers, I think three or four innings to, to finish the game. And at that game, I had not only my family, but a lot of my high school teammates. To put it in perspective, I was pitching for uh, on that high school team in May, June of that same year, and now it was September, and I was pitching in the major league. So it was a very unusual start. Believe me, it was, I feel, just a really blessed career because uh, it went from there to the next year when I didn't get sent down. And the reason I bring that up is that that year there was a rule that if you didn't keep a player on the major league roster, he could be subjected to a draft. And then they were pretty sure some other team would draft me, so they kept me in the major league pitching out of the bullpen. And I did well enough to about halfway through, I got in the starting rotation. And then I just kept on pitching until my arm fell off. Yeah, and you also spent some time in the Army, so you had some service time where you were away for a little bit during your pitching career. Yes, it was, it was really a, a, a common thing with uh, all major league teams that if you had young prospects that uh, were drafted out of high school and uh, didn't have a college deferment, that they would place you into a National Guard or Army Reserve unit and you'd spend the six years, which I did, but you'd go to weekend meetings uh, once a month and then a two-week summer camp in the summer. And uh, they say six months, it was more like five active duty. So I was trained in the Army, and it wasn't really anywhere near as much fun as being trained in baseball. So you come to Colt Stadium in Houston, and and you know for our listeners, you know it's been sixty years, sixty one years since Colt Stadium was there. You know, and I always wonder, was it just a different time? Did people just not? I mean, you couldn't get away from the heat. There was one doubleheader where there were eighty fans treated for sun exhaustion. You know, how did you yeah. deal with that back then? Well, back then, you know, you have to remember that I was seventeen years old when I got here. And uh, so I was so excited about that that I'm not sure I really noticed. And the other thing is, coming from California, uh, we lived in San Fernando Valley, which is inland on the other side of the coastal range. And it gets hot out there, too. It's not uncommon at all to have 100-degree weather in Southern California. So going from there to Cocoa, Florida, and, and seeing the other type of heat, which is the type that has a lot of humidity along with it. Yeah, it was sweaty, it was hot, but by the time I got here, maybe I was used to it, maybe I was just excited, but I don't remember thinking about it being hot. And I do remember one day, I was staying in a motel on South Main Street, directly across from the Astrodome, and uh, just to spend some time and look around, I started walking down Main Street, and I walked all the way downtown. And then I walked back. You walked all the way uh, a 10-mile walk <laughs> in, in that heat during the daytime, and I don't remember it being that hot then. You know, I think we need to get you into, like, a Houston Hall of Fame just for that occurrence right there, walking back <laughs> yeah. and forth up and down Main Street from downtown. I mean, that's that hasn't changed today. It's still the same distance. It's NRG Park yeah, it now, is. but it's the same distance. I, I would love to challenge anybody 
to get out there in the summertime or late summer and walk from that area of town to downtown and back. That is really something. And in the Houston heat. Yes, that's what I mean. I mean, we, we I mean, I can't believe that I just heard. It. I didn't know that, Larry. I mean, so how many did, were you like at 110 pounds after 130 pounds? Did you lose <laughs> 20 pounds in that time period? I was uh, six foot four in high school, so I, I reached my uh, ultimate height um, young. I probably weighed about 190 pounds uh, as the years went by, and I gained a little strength and maturity. I, I got a little heavier, and I pitched mostly around 215, and I, I really would like to see those days return. Out of spring training, you make the ball club, like you said, and that was the first year of the new ballpark, the Astrodome. You went from Colt Stadium to the Astrodome. Do you remember the day and what it was like when you first walked in the Astrodome? Uh, vividly. We, we came back from spring training to play uh, exhibition games uh, with the Yankees, for sure. I think we played somebody before the Yankees. But when we got there from Florida, it was dark, and the lights were on in the Astrodome. So that as we pulled up to the building, you could tell that you could walk in there and see what was in inside. And uh, I remember walking across the concourse, down into the field box seats, along with all of my teammates. And uh, it was just so bright with you know, the colors of all the, the different decks had different colored cushion seats. And uh, they set the scoreboard off for us while we were out there. I remember one of the writers asking me how I felt, and I said. I felt like I just walked into the next century. Yeah. So uh, after I got the uh, the managerial job, and they asked me about it, and I said, "Well, I know it's a it's a one way job because every manager that's ever managed, except for Connie Mack, has been fired, and I just hope I can make it long enough to manage in the new stadium." And I did. So and we won those last three years in the Astrodome and went to the playoffs and lost, but we. We had three really good years, and then uh, we went downtown and had a terrible year the first year. The, the pitchers just freaked out because it was a, you know, it's a hitter-friendly park, especially for home runs. And when batting practice, the balls were flying in the seats in every direction, and the pitchers started pitching defensively and were getting behind the count all the time. They were walking a lot of guys. Whereas in the Astrodome, you could challenge hitters, and, and most of the the hitters were not going to hit a home run. None of them were going to hit opposite field home runs. And so there was a certain comfort there, but I didn't understand why it didn't translate. And believe me, I talked to them as a group more than a few times about pitching in hitter-friendly ballparks, that, that you just have to readjust your thinking and say, I'm not out here to lower my ERA. I'm out here to win the game because it's the same way for the other pitchers. So if you're going to pitch in Wrigley with a bow and out, about 30 miles an hour, you know you're liable to give up a home run or two. For me, I didn't mind winning 8-7. to seven. I just wanted to win. Then later on, when we started going to Denver, it was the same way. So I tell these guys, look, if you're going to pitch in Ed Wrigley with a wind blowing out, or you're going to pitch in Denver, uh, it's going to be just like this. So don't worry about your ERA. You still have to challenge hitters. You, you, know, you still have to try to make good pitches, and you have to be willing to accept that you may give up some cheap home runs. You talk about the, the left field over at, at Minute Maid Park. It's 315 feet, and it really did psych out a lot of guys. Jose Lima was probably at the top of the list at that time. 
315 feet down the left field line, and it had a 19 and a half foot wall. But you know, from the dugout, I remember looking, you know, straight down and from your view as well. That wall is about half the height of the Green Monster in, in at Fenway in Boston. And it really did psych out. I mean, it looked big. It looked like it was so close. It looked like it was just right over the third baseman's shoulder. But 315 I feet. That way. Yeah, that was that was just a line down the baseline. But to hit it, to hit it over that 19 and a half foot wall, you really that's how they got away with it. You have to hit it a minimum 325, 330, which is more the league minimum. Uh, so what would you have done different if you were pitching at Minute Maid Park in, in 2000 or in the mid-2000s? Well, uh, I probably would have thrown more sinkers and sliders and fewer forcing fastballs. I probably would have tried harder to get the ball hit on the ground rather than in the air. But you have to remember that uh, the Astrodome also had a very high left field fence. Uh, it went all the way up to the mezzanine. And so... I don't know how many feet it was, you probably know, but it was 340 down the line. And the ball didn't carry very well inside. It carried a lot better outdoors, and it carried better even indoors at Minute Maid than it did in the Astrodome. We really didn't start pitching aggressively the way we should pitch until Scott Ellerton and Roy Oswald came up because they didn't have so much experience with the protectionist type of distances that the Astrodome afforded, and so they just pitched like they had in the minor leagues and went after hitters and had some success, and then some of the guys started pitching more aggressively, and we learned that uh, you can pitch well at Minute Maid Park, and the Astros of recent vintage have proven that. Uh, even now, I think their bullpen has got the lowest ERA in the American League. So, yeah, you just have to pitch well. You, you can't think about the fences. Once you get the right mindset, I think it's a good place to pitch because it also gives your own players a chance to put some runs up there for you. I want to go back to your playing days, and we're going to talk about a lot about the, the managerial days a little bit later, but your playing days, especially the late 60s, pitchers were doing very well, 1968, of course, you know, Bob Gibson and, and a lot of the great pitchers had outstanding years. They lower the mound to benefit the hitters. And then in 69, you have a career year. Well, you know, and I've been asked that question a few times. How can you explain pitching better with the lower mound? And my feeling is that it depends what kind of a pitcher you are. If you throw straight overhand, probably would like to have a taller mound with a steeper slope. But if you throw anywhere around three-quarters or sidearm, you prefer a mound that's not so high. The way I can explain the difference in 68 and 69 is I got better. Uh, it wasn't because of the mound. It wasn't in spite of the mound. It was just that I was gaining more and more experience with the innings that, uh, that I pitched, and uh, I was just a better pitcher. That was a career year if there ever was one because I never had another one that was even close. And you like to finish what you started. You had 20 yeah. complete games. 20 complete games. Major League Baseball doesn't even have 20 complete games as a whole now in a, in a year. I know. Well, good news and bad news, I guess. Uh, we never had the deepest or strongest bullpen, for one thing. So if I looked down there and saw who was warming up, it gave me an added incentive to try to finish it myself. 
Well, the other part was just the way the uh, managers managed. A lot of guys pitched a lot of complete games. I don't think I led the league that year. The times have changed and strategies have changed along with it. And, and so now the guys that are pitching who could easily pitch complete games don't because the managers take them out of the game. So for me, if things don't change in baseball, the two Astros pitching records I still have are complete games and shutouts. And I think those records will stand because the, there won't be a pitcher come along that will be allowed to pitch that many complete games, and you can't pitch a shutout unless you pitch a complete game. You also have 305.1 innings that were pitched in 1969 during that 20-win that season. That that right there is a franchise record as well. Yeah, and I, I really, you know, I really wanted to pitch complete games. It was an incentive. I think you guys now don't think anything of it. They just walk off the mound, go home, no big deal. You could be pitching a shutout and take you out of the game. I, I just, I probably, I would not have been happy to be taken out of the yeah. game if I was pitching a shutout. Well, talk a little bit about that because you know I always love the the mentality of a pitcher. You go out there and you're the first line of defense. I mean, it begins and ends right there with you. You are out there on the mound, challenging the hitter to go ahead, go ahead here, try to hit it. Here it comes, and and either they do or they yeah. don't. I mean, that's a it's a great mindset, don't you think? Yes, I do. And, uh, and another thing that uh, I tried to get uh, our pitchers when I was managing to have the mentality of wanting to pitch a, a complete game. You know, it, when I was pitching, if, if we'd had Billy Wagner, uh, I would have said, come on in, Billy Boy, come on. <laughs> I would have been happy to have him pitch the ninth inning. But uh, he wasn't there. And so it was easy for me to have that mentality that I wanted to finish. And it didn't take you out of games just because you were losing. So I think uh, the, I think I pitched all three complete games my last three starts of the year in 69, and lost all of them. So, and that pitch pretty well, but, you know, if you come up and there's two outs and nobody on, they wouldn't pinch hit. And so, and now, of course, they don't have to because of the age. So it's, it, I don't understand why uh, managers take pitchers out about half of the time these days. Because most of the time, they haven't, throwing more than 100 pitches, I would say the majority of the time they're still throwing well. And so I have always felt that if I came, well, if I came out of the game or any other pitcher who was pitching a strong game, that the hitters on the other team would be happy, that they would think they'd rather face somebody else because they've already faced me three times. I was tough. And so I, about that mentality, I'm trying to tell the starters, these guys don't want to face you. You've been getting them out. Uh, that's why you're still in the game with a chance to go all the way yourself. If we bring in somebody else, they're going to think it's a breath of fresh air. Maybe they'll get someone they can hit. Uh, but they don't manage that way anymore. And even to me, even more surprising is uh, if you take a guy out in the, after the sixth inning, which they do fairly often, the next guy comes in and gets them out one, two, three on ten pitches. And then they bring in another pitcher. Well, the same thing for that reliever is with the starter. If you're throwing that well, why not stay in the game? But I did as a manager, and what every manager I played for did in that kind of situation was to start warming up some pitchers just lightly in the bullpen. 
say if you have a left-hander, but get the left-hander and right-hander up and just play catch and start getting loose and, and don't really extend yourself. But then if a guy gets on base starting the next inning, so pick up the pace a little bit. If the next guy gets on base or you get it out and another guy gets on base and now there's two guys on, maybe the tying run, well, now start getting ready. And we send the pitching coach out there. And the pitching coach can go out there and waste some time and then come back to the dugout. By that time, the pitchers in the bullpen are pretty close to being ready. So maybe the, the starter has one more hitter, and sometimes even if he gets them out, if he looks a little shaky, you can still bring in the next guy who you would have brought in to start the inning. I don't see pitchers in the bullpen just going along like they used to, just getting close to ready but not really extending themselves. I think that's a much better uh, way to handle the pitching staff, but I seem to be alone in that uh, in that opinion. <laughs> well, you know, Larry, I was at dinner one time. This was several years ago, and I was talking to a, a baseball operations person. They were talking about this scenario where a particular ball club was going to look at putting in essentially two starting pitchers a game where no matter what was going on, the starter would go in there for about four innings and then was going to be removed by another guy who could be a starting pitcher. And, you know, I thought to myself immediately, well, you know, there goes the 300 game winners. I mean, <laughs> I mean, if a guy is in there and he is yeah. pitching well, who, like you just said, what pitcher, what kind of competitor, you know, is that really a baseball move? What kind of competitor is going to want to come out of a game if he's dominating, uh, you know? It's, it's, science, it's the science guys. You know, they've proven, uh, I guess, with their computers that if a pitcher goes through the lineup the third, for the third time, that he's vulnerable. Now, everyone is not the same. Every pitcher is different. And some guys can handle uh, pitching more innings in a game than others. And some guys... Uh, can handle pitching in a, late in a game in a, in a low-scoring game without squeezing it too hard and looking at the bullpen for help. And some guys can. So I mean, as a manager, you try to figure out who can do what. But uh, for me, to always encourage them that they can do more than they think they can. Well, some organizations already do that in the minor leagues. I know the Astros, I see it in Sugarland all the time, piggybacking. Two starters do go four innings, four innings, and then they throw in their closer. Yeah, but the only thing about that is you don't have a guy that's ready to pitch seven innings and call him up because it's, it's a matter of conditioning. Uh, and the other thing I've heard him talk about is a six-man rotation. I've even heard the Astros talking about doing that in the major leagues. And uh, I would not have liked that at all. I, when my arm was healthy, I preferred to pitch on the fourth day. Yeah, you want to keep yourself in a, in a rhythm there as a starting pitcher. Yeah, it's, a, it's all about control, and the, and the longer you rest, the more likely you are to have lively stuff uh, and trouble controlling it. I want to go back to 1969, and that was the year that Major League Baseball expanded into the divisions because of all the expansion teams with the Expos and the Padres and the National League and the the Royals and the Seattle Pilots in the American League, and 69... I thought that, looking back at it, that the Astros, your ball club, competitive, really, and in the divisional race for a long part of the season. We sure were. Um, and that, that was a, a very interesting season because uh, if you could take out April and September, we might have been the best team in baseball. 
weak team and they swept us. <laughs> in the 20th loss, we were in Cincinnati, and Jim Maloney pitched a no-hitter against us. The next day, my teammate, Don Wilson, pitched a no-hitter against them. And I believe that no-hitter was uh, the start of a 10-game winning streak that got us back towards respectability. If it wasn't the next day, it was very early in the season. Uh, after that terrible start, we won 10 in a row. Later in the summer, we won 10 in a row again. And so as we got into September, we were close enough to, to think about winning the division. Well, now we go to, to 1976, and you have now been pitching for quite a few years with the Astros. And you're on the mound, I believe it was a Thursday night, July 9th, 1976. It was against the Montreal Expos. And the Astros win six to nothing over the Expos at the Dome. And it was a it was a great win. I think there was about twelve thousand in attendance. But the the real big notable feature of this win was you threw a no-hitter against the Expos, the fifth no-hitter in Astros franchise history. And there's some things in there that I thought are, are very interesting. First, first the uh, manager of the Expos was the scout that I believe signed you to your first major league contract. Is that correct, Carl Cool? That's it, Carl Keel. Yeah, he, yeah, he was a, he was the scout that found me and and uh, sent the report to Houston that eventually got the scouting director Jim Wilson and the general manager Paul Richards to come to California for a staged workout. And I pitched against a couple of uh, young guys from the Southern California area. One of them was Willie Crawford, who ended up having a pretty good major league career. But in in that tryout, uh, they weren't even getting the ball out of the cage. I think that's what got me my signing bonus, which was significant. And maybe also, you know, since I continued to throw that way in, in the instructional league, it got me to Houston so soon. So, Larry, uh, July 9th, 1976, you tossed the fifth no-hitter in Astros franchise history. It was against the Montreal Expos. It was, I believe, a Thursday night at the Astrodome. About 12,000 people were in attendance. And something happened that night. Uh, first, talk a little bit about that no-hitter. I mean, what was it like, you know, after you have the 20-game wins and the complete games, uh, the, the amount of pitches, you know, the success that you had, you know, the Astros now had a winning season, had gone through a 500 season in 69 and 72, finally had the, the first winning season. And then there's a, there's a few, you know, the, the power's gone in the early parts of the, the decade in the 70s, but the pitching was still pretty good there. And you throw a no-hitter, walk us through that night, and then there's something I want to bring up in particular that happened in the eighth inning. Yes, well, I, in a way, I, I was like my own um, relief pitcher in that game because uh, I was at the stage in my career where I didn't have much left in my arm. Uh, I regard uh, that uh, that night as a gift from God because I didn't. They actually asked me after the game, "When did you know you had a no hitter?" And I said, "I knew in the first inning because I was walking back to the dugout. And I remember thinking, I can't remember getting through the first inning without giving up a hit." which is something you wouldn't think about normally, but that's where I was in my career. Uh, and I became two pitchers. Uh, I was determined not to try to overthrow and to just mix up speeds and move the ball around and try to get some movement on a fastball and, 
and make the hitters hit the ball uh, off the end of the bat or jam them and, and, and not necessarily try to strike anybody out. But what happened about the sixth inning is I started getting this adrenaline kick. And, uh, you know, by the seventh inning, all the players at the and the dugout started moving down towards the other end because they didn't want me to want to jinx me. And uh, so in the eighth and ninth inning, I threw nothing but fastballs. I was like, uh, I was like a lot of the closers are now. I was just blowing them away. And I, afterwards, I thought, I have a throw like this. I can't remember the last time I had a fastball like this. But uh, that's what happened. And the Expos didn't have the greatest lineup in the league, so that probably helped some, too. A couple of good plays, Enos Cabell uh, uh, charging in on Chopper down the third baseline, had to uh, make a, a bare hand play on that one, and then Jose Cruz caught a ball back on the warning track in right center that might have gone out had we been playing in Montreal. Um, so I had a little luck, but there were no really spectacular no-hitter saving plays like there often are, uh, when a guy gets through a game without giving up a hit. So in the eighth inning, Pete McKinnon comes up to the plate, and you strike him out, and you're you're heading towards the end of the ball game. It's late in the game. You know you have the adrenaline rush, and you realize what's going on. But on top of this, it's Fomer night at the Astrodome, and you know back around 1974. The Astros started because the you know they, they were trying to get fans to come out to the to the dome and watch the games. Fomer nights were invented if the Astros hit a home run with the light on a particular light on the scoreboard, everybody would get free beer until the end of the inning. But the the issue was is that the power really wasn't there for the Astros, so they s- switched it to pitching. And so here you are in the midst of mowing down the Montreal Expos and the light comes on and Pete McCannon comes up and you strike him out. Tell us what happened after that. Well, uh, what happened after that is what people tell me. And it may be <laughs> at this point, because I wasn't up there in the stands. If you struck a designated guy out in this game, it was Pete McCannon. Then everyone got free beer. So, uh, a lot of the people ran for the beer lines in the eighth inning. And from what I'm told, a significant number of those people, uh, when they got their beer, went back and got in line again. <laughs> and so they drink the beer on their way up to it, and then they get another one. So they spent the last two innings drinking free beer and missed the no-hitter. I mean, there was no limit. I mean, this was a different time. And as long as the the eighth inning lasted, and if you look at some of the photos of Fomer Night, there are all sorts of people in line on the concourses at the Astrodome with trays worth of beer. They must have told the the concessionaire person, hey, I have eight people that I'm with because you have guys walking back with literally almost eight to ten cups of beer going back to their seats. That, That was just a crazy crazy time the fact that it coincided with a no-hitter is just really something that's just that's just something that doesn't happen anymore you for one no team is ever going to give away free beer or have nickel beer night or 10 cent beer night whatever it is but that right uh, there had some riots on that <laughs> they had a riot in chicago i think it was, oh it was the bill vac it was a disco demolition 
Yes. Double header, and then the fans got drunk and came down on the field and started breaking all these records up and set them on fire and everything. And the White Sox forfeited the second game. Uh, it happened in Cleveland, I think, with a nickel beer night, where some of the fans in the left field bleachers were giving a, one of the left fielders a lot of grief, and he started yelling back at him. And the next thing you know, they came over the wall and caused a riot on the field. So. Uh, That's right. <laughs> well, Larry, that's gonna. We're gonna take a quick break here. We'll come right back to Astro Talk, presented by Houston City Beat, in just a moment. Legacy Sports Network now celebrating 16 years of broadcast excellence. We're your home for local high school sports coverage. Expect excellent audio and video production. Whether listening at home or at the game, find us at lsnsports.com. Legacy Sports Network, building a legacy, one game at a time. I'm Lisbeth Marquez, the founder and creator of Houston City Beat, where we are storytellers of Houston, bringing you original content over a multitude of platforms. Connecting you with fellow Houstonians. Together, we collaborate to be Houston strong. Because this is my hometown and this is your hometown too. And there's just something about that beat. Houston City Beat. You're listening to Astro Talk with Micah Costa and Gerald Sanchez. Welcome back to Astro Talk. Gerald Sanchez along with Mike Acosta. And this segment is brought to you by Capismo Communications, providing a wonderful and modern podcast facility. Visit them at capismo.com. Join with my Astro Hall of Famer and legend Larry Durker. Larry, you had, uh, I remember you telling a story one time about you trying to score on Roberto Clemente. Oh, yeah. I was, uh, I don't know how I got to third base, but I was on third base in, in Forbes Field, and uh, the hitter hit a ball to shallow right field, and third base coach Jim Busby said, tag up. Well, you know, I was only a few months out of high school. I thought he meant tag up and score. And I knew Clemente had a good arm, but I just set sail for home. And Clemente did a double take. Fired the ball home. Uh, Jim Pagliaroni was the uh, Pirates catcher. He had to jump up high to catch the ball, and then he came down on top of me, sliding in, and spiked me. But I was safe. <laughs> and and uh, it tore my pants, you know, all the way from the knee down. Uh, and I had to go back and get another pair of pants from the locker room, which you had to go through the Pirates dugout to do that. So that was uh, memorable for sure. I bet you Whitey Diskin was happy to see you, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, luckily, you know, if they were going to bring extra uniforms, Whitey Diskin, uh, for those of you who don't know, he was the, uh, the clubhouse manager at the time, and he had a lot easier job than these guys do in this day and age because now they wear a different uniform practically every day. And back then, we just had the home whites and the road grays. So he didn't have to have a, you know, a whole rainbow full of uh, pants and jerseys when he went on a road trip. But yeah, I had to, had to change pants. 
<laughs> and I bet you Clemente did was was probably in right field going, "What is this kid doing?" You said he kind of took know. a double well, take. What is he doing? Thing. He didn't actually come up throwing. He caught it. Looked at me running and went, uh oh. <laughs> you know, was and probably you know it wasn't a deep fly, which is probably why the throw was so high. Um, but I, I have a picture of that around here somewhere. Uh, just a blurred picture from a newspaper article, but uh, it was one of the memorable uh, incidents in my career. Would you say that Clemente had the best arm that you ever saw? Yes, um, and I'm not, I wouldn't say that he had the strongest arm I ever saw. And we had a guy uh, here when I was managing that was pretty darn close to him, Richard Hidalgo. And the key to both of those guys was that they didn't have to really draw their arm back uh, in order to get a lot of power behind the throw. So one of the things that you try to get your outfielders to do is get the ball and get it in the air back towards the uh, relay man or the cutoff man. And for some guys that have a long arm throw, like me, I was never good at uh, holding runners because I had to reach my arm way back to make a, a good throw. Another guy we tried to work with was Lance Berkman. He could never get that transition and throw uh, quickly like Richard Hidalgo, but Richard could get rid of it just about as quickly as Roberto. And he was, his arm strength was probably in the same range, and his accuracy was good, too. But you don't find too many guys like that. Most guys have to draw their arm back a little bit to, uh, to get something on the throw. You, uh, you end your career in Houston. You go to St. Louis, and you play one final season. Uh, that was, uh, was, what was that season like for you? I remained hurt all year long. I pitched about 30 innings, I think, but it was mostly a 
a year spent on the disabled list. Uh, it was a nice year in a sense that the Cardinals were um, a legendary franchise going back over a hundred years, and they treated me like a king, even when I couldn't pitch. They were uh, so good about it, and uh, so the next uh, during the off season, I worked out a lot with weights and different ways to try to get my shoulders stronger. But when I got to spring training, within a week or ten days, my shoulder was just aching. I wasn't throwing very hard. I didn't have very good control. And I got hit all over the lot on the, that spring. And so they finally brought me in and released me. And Ving Devine, the general manager, said, well, you know, you're only 31 years old, and I'm sure somebody would uh, like to take take you on and see if we can get you going again. But but we don't have room. I think, yeah, I understand, okay. He said, well, I can make some calls. I might be like, no, don't make any calls. <laughs> I'm tired of, of my shoulder hurting. And I'm tired of getting my ass kicked. So it's, it's, this is it for me. So then you go into the community relations. You come back to Houston, go, go right back where, where you began, and you go into community relations and ticket sales with the Astros. And now you get to see it from a whole different, entirely new perspective from the front office side. What, what was that transition like? Well, it was uh, because I had uh, gone to U of A during the off-seasons and majored in English, I had to do a lot of writing, and I actually was interviewing uh, the marketing director of the Astros, Dean Borba, and he asked me if I would be willing to head up group and season ticket sales, and I said, well, yeah, I might be willing to do that, but um, I'd really prefer to broadcast, and he said, well, it's interesting that you bring that up because... Uh, we're gonna we're gonna do about 30 games from the road this year, and we're gonna need a, a second broadcaster to do those games right. And so there's a good chance you could do that. You know, could you do both? And I said, Yeah, I can do both if you give me a chance to broadcast. And so that started the broadcasting, and then later on, I started writing a column, and then later on after that, I started doing what uh, something that. Uh, it's called a podcast these days, but they didn't have a name for it back then. But they were all historical segments, let's say, in baseball history. Uh, a large number of them were about Astros history, but there were lots of other subjects. And so it ended up by signing out of high school, but going to college in the offseason paid off after my uh, playing career was over. But the office part was selling the tickets was... Uh, both easy and difficult. It was easy because in 79, the team almost uh, won the division, lost out to the Reds in the end, but they were in first place for, oh, I would say through August. And so we started getting some pretty good crowds, and it got a lot easier to sell tickets. And so that offseason, we sold a lot of season tickets, and, and then we won that division in 1980, and we sold a lot again. After that season, and after that, by this time, they started televising more games, and then they asked me if I thought I'd like to do radio, and I said I would. And so after that, I think it was after the 80 season, maybe 81, but I think it was after 80, I gave up my office job selling tickets and started broadcasting 162 games. So I think all of that was possible because 
when I signed, my dad said, well, I'm going to sign this with you. I was a minor, so he said, I'll co-sign, but you have to promise me that you'll go to uh, college during the off-season. And so I would have promised anything. I wanted to go play pro ball. But uh, these days, I'm not sure he would have had to give me that advice because if you make it to the major leagues and play well enough, uh, you probably don't need another job after your career. What was it like those first years broadcasting? Uh, did you get any coaching from Gene Elston? No, uh, but I uh, I followed Gene, and at that time the other play-by-play guy was Dwayne Stats, and I followed them around everywhere and, and watched what they did, and uh, we'd done some spring training games, and that kind of helped. And what I noticed was that uh, all of the people in the press box, are they put out a lot of uh, press notes. They give you information about... Uh, the starting pitchers, who has a hitting streak, what the bullpen has done their last few times, uh, just all kinds of factual information. And so I would read through all that stuff and highlight it and make notes on my scorecard. What I found about halfway through the year was I had the same information that the play-by-play guys had. I thought, well, I don't want to announce you know, this guy's got a hitting streak because that's the function of the play-by-play guy. So I started keeping uh, quotes, uh, famous quotes from baseball all throughout history, and I started doing those podcasts. I, start, I started making a redefining my role as a broadcaster to do things that would augment what they were doing instead of doing things that were sort of stepping on their toes. I got one good story for you here, though. Uh, the in my first year broadcasting, let's see, I think it was 1979. The second day of the season, Kenny Force was the starting pitcher. He'd gotten bitten by a spider that night. His elbow was all swollen up, and so they scratched him from the lineup. And he went in and pleaded with Bill Verdon that he didn't have any pain and he wanted to pitch. And he talked him into it. So I was sitting up in the press box. Uh, opening day, I didn't keep score. But on the second day of the season, I said, I need to keep score this game because I've never kept score of a baseball game before. So I keep score of this game, uh, and Kenny Force pitches a no-hitter. Against the Atlanta Braves. Yeah, that was the Braves in 79. And that was the next no-hitter after yours. His was the sixth in in franchise history, and uh, that's that's incredible to to come back from a spider bite like that. the very first game I ever scored. And so the next day I took the score sheet down to him and said, it feels great, doesn't it? And I gave it to him. I don't know if he still got it, but uh, it was kind of a big thing for me because, you know, you don't expect uh, a no-hitter any time, but it was coming on the first day that I ever tried to keep score of a game. Well, let's say it was easy to keep score of because there weren't any hits. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, Larry, I remember when, when Jim Deshays moved into the booth and you were the manager of the Astros, you know, I think he, he kind of took a cue, you know, from the, the transition from being a pitcher and, and going into the broadcast booth. But, you know, one of the things that, that's one of the beautiful things about broadcasting baseball is that baseball lends itself to storytelling. It's, it kind of reminds me, you know, when I was a kid, my grandfather and I used to listen to the Astros and, uh, you know, I would hear you and my grandfather and I, we would sit out, we were at their house out in the Heights and, it was just a real pleasant evening, and we would hear the Astros and hear Gene Elston and, and Larry Durker and Milo Hamilton and 
Jerry Trupiano, Dwayne Stats, all all those, you know, all the whole broadcast team. And it always yeah. sounded like a story, you know, and my grandfather and I would sit around and we would then start our kind of our own broadcast talking about the Astros. And that was one of the great things because baseball really lends itself to storytelling because you never know what's going to happen in front of you. And Jim Deshays, when he went into the broadcast booth, he said that every baseball game is like a little gift that, you know, it's a little gift wrap box and you start to peel it open and you just never know what's going to be inside. So you got to be prepared yeah. for anything. That's a, that's a really good description. And uh, I, I, I think I had a big part of him becoming my replacement. Uh, when they first asked me, I suggested Larry Anderson, who was uh, Deshaies running buddy. Larry was a pitching coach AAA with the Phillies. He thought he was going to get the big league job, so he declined to be interviewed. And so they asked me again, and I said, well, how about his running buddy, Jim Deshaies? He's got a good sense of humor. Deshaies? <laughs> well, you know, he wasn't like Larry Anderson. Everybody knew that Larry Anderson was a character, but so was Deshaies, but in a, a, a more subtle kind of way. Uh, so then they interviewed Rusty Staub, and they weren't satisfied with that. And then they interviewed Joe Necro. I think they wanted a more experienced veteran, star caliber player. But they they passed again on Joe Necro, and then they finally interviewed the Shays. And they went, well, he's kind of soft spoken, but he you know he said a lot of good things. So they gave him a try, and he turned out to be so good. He was just I, I think he's one of the best in the business. Right now, I haven't heard him in a couple of years, but I heard him enough when he was here. Uh, he just, you know, he got got a nice touch. He seems, he, he seems like uh, he could come up with something that is surprising, uh, at least most of the time, most games. And what I remember the most, somebody was trying to run to third, and the ball got to the third baseman when he was still about 10 or 15 feet away. And he just sort of pulled up and stopped running, and third baseman walked over and tagged him. And they did the replay, and the chase said, well, you know, there are times in a game where you just wish you could call time out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Another beautiful thing about baseball, without baseball's a game without a clock. You know, you got to yeah. get them out, no matter how long it takes. Yeah, except the one they have now. I wish they'd let the umpires do it. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so well, it seems to me like every time we, they change the rules every year now, and every time they change the rules, it, it looks like they're trying to become more like football. And I think baseball is good the way you remember it on the front porch, where you can tell stories. Yeah, it's hard to tell. You you can't tell stories on TV anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's just there's no time because every time there's any break at all, there's something that they do to try to raise more money. You know, it's a, a sponsored highlight or a, what, whatever. On radio, you can still squeeze a story in once in a while, but it's become harder because the powers that be are dictating the content by virtue of what they've been able to get sponsored. Yeah, and and always, you never start a story with two outs. <laughs> That's oh, right. I learned that one. <laughs> <laughs> What was it like working with Gene Elston and then Milo Hamilton and, and also Bill Brown? The differences, the, the comparisons? 
Well, brownie uh, is similar to Gene. I think Gene had a really mellow voice that everybody liked. And, and Gene uh, also, he didn't try to tell jokes or say anything funny uh, like Milo did. And, and Bill didn't really either. Milo would try to, you know, be the show himself. And so he was a lot louder. <laughs> yeah. And so he would tell a, a joke or say something funny. And he was a, a good pro. He knew the game. And he had a wonderful, resonant voice. He was good to work with. He, he embraced uh, working with me. And I, I, I think we made a pretty good team. Gene, on the other hand, felt like radio, it was meant for only one broadcaster. So I had fun working with Gene when we were on the road doing TV. But when we were doing radio, it was more difficult because he didn't really want to have a partner on radio. And he just, it, it was obvious. The other thing uh, that Gene would do, though, that I think was really delightful, and I think had to come across to the listeners at home, is he would find things in games that were funny. So instead of saying something funny, he would just laugh. But something happened uh, in the game where that thing, you know, called time out or something, he wouldn't have said that, but he might have laughed at it if something happened. And so it was a very casual presentation. He had a wonderful voice working with him. And Milo was, you know, it was a totally different experience. <laughs> the, the reason, well, there was a time, I don't know, remember which year. There was a time when one of them would be, do the first three innings on TV and then come over to the middle three innings on radio and then back to TV. And they'd switch that out day to day. So during the game, I would broadcast with both of those guys. And, uh, if Milo was in the booth, I'd have to turn my volume and my headset down a little bit. And with Gene, I had to turn it up a little bit. And you know, I think Milo always had a sense of the big moment that was impending. Because if you go back and you listen to the uh, September 25th, 1986, the day that the Astros beat the Giants and clinched the, the Western Division with that Mike Scott no-hitter, the approach is completely different. And obviously... This was the day that also uh, sort of sealed Gene's fate with the team, you know, when, when Dick Wagner decided to, to let him go after the season was over. But if you listen to Gene, who is letting the television tell the story, and he, you know, the, the play goes to first base. Glenn Davis, it's a three unassisted play to get Will Clark out. And, uh, you know, he says, there it is. And if you listen to the radio broadcast, Milo is there. And I believe he said you, he goes, Larry Durker has gone down to the clubhouse. He's ready there. We're in the Astrodome. The Astros are winning two to nothing. And then at the right moment, it seemed like he just timed it. He interjects, I'm Milo Hamilton. (laughs) 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 And he makes it known that in the clip, Milo Hamilton is broadcasting as if you can't identify his voice, but it's that yeah, those are the types of things that he he would do and it, it i think it was just part of the showmanship and it was just part of a a different type of broadcaster that you know we don't we i don't think we see that today now but uh you know you got to work with some really great guys and and you know bringing a brand like you to that broadcast where would have a a former player who could really identify with what was going down on the field that was just a really great astros radio team uh, yeah i thought i thought it was pretty good too 
I felt that it was a good combination to have Gene with his style, Milo with his style. Gene was told several times by Dick Wagner, and he was the kind of guy you should listen because it's not an idle threat. But, but Wagner wanted him to promote more and sell tickets more and get more excited with his calls. He wanted to bring, he wanted to change his style, and Gene just refused to do it. And so they let him go. It really hurt when Dwayne Stats went to the Cubs and Milo came uh, down from the Cubs to join our broadcast because there was such a contrast between the two of them. And Milo was constantly trying to sell tickets and constantly mentioning sponsors and constantly mentoring our, mentioning affiliated radio stations throughout our broadcast area. And so he was nothing if not a promoter. And it, it really was a stark contrast between Gene Elston and Milo Hamilton, and I thought it was fine. I mean, I, I think that a lot of people tell me they really like Gene, and they, they think that Milo was too full of himself. Other people tell me they really liked Milo because he was so lively and, and Gene was dull. So I mean, certain people have their preferences, but I don't see why we couldn't have had both. No, I think, and it was a it was a very good balance, uh, and I got to know uh, Gene. I, for, of course, I, I worked with Milo in the in the booth for for a number of years, and he was really great with me when I started out as an intern. And uh, even even uh, I, I remember when I was asking him, I said, "Hey, I'm I'm trying to find because I was actually working with Gerald on some broadcasts of high school baseball games, and I was looking for a good scorebook." And, and Milo sat down with me and showed me his scorebook, the C.S. Peterson book, and how he did it. And he showed me the multicolor of scoring the game and how he did this and that. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, he, really, he really took some time out to, to speak to somebody who was really young at the time and myself and taught me a lot about it. And Gene Elston, too. Uh, yeah, I think it was they both the, – you talk about the different styles of broadcasting that they have, but one thing they all had in common, and, and also Bill Brown in there, too – they all love the game of baseball, and they, they have a, a great respect for what was going on in front of them on the playing field. No question. It would really be hard uh, to do a good job broadcasting baseball unless you really love the sport. It, it would show. It, 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 you know, you can fake some things, but when you have to do nine innings or more uh, for 162 games, uh, if, you, if you really – aren't meant to be broadcasting, it'll come through on the air. So they were all good. You know, Brownie, when he first came over, uh, he'd been with the Reds, and he, uh, they had an ownership change or something, and he lost his job and ended up with the financial news network doing sports and living in L.A. And he wasn't making much money, and he wasn't living in a real nice neighborhood. And when he got the call to come here and, uh, interview for the uh, the TV job. He was thrilled, and when he got the job, he got uh, so excited uh, and was so determined not to lose that job. He actually worked too hard. Yeah, there, and he you know, he would always uh, he always worked hard. But when I say too hard, I mean that he would he would have so much preparatory material at his disposal by the time the first pitch was thrown, that a lot of times he would try to get it all in. And, you know, 
like if, if a guy had uh, stolen 17 straight bases, I think one time Kenny Lawson stolen 17 straight bases without being caught, something like that. And so he comes up leading off the game in the first game of the series, and Brownie got that in there. Hmm. And I thought, you know, if he just wait, he's probably going to get on base sometime during this series, and that's the time to use that. And he figured that out pretty quickly. But I, I could, I remember going to his room and talking about something, and he would have newspapers cut out with scissors all over the bedspread from all different uh, newspapers and sporting news and everything else. I mean, there was never a broadcaster that was more prepared for a game than Bill Brown. And that's part of the craft of knowing when to disseminate that information and not to overload the viewer or the listener with a bunch of numbers. I know, and there's, there's even more numbers now. I've learned a lot about uh, pitching since analytics have come into play because I didn't know about uh, you know the spin speed. and There's just a, a lot of things that I've learned about pitching that I didn't know when I pitched, and that's, that's 2,300 innings full of pitching without knowing some of these things. Baseball is a great game for people that like to go behind the game and process the information. And now there's more information than ever because of analytics. But in a way, it also kind of sometimes cuts into the storytelling. Um, I think, you know, to to really do a nice job these days, it it takes a, a pretty good touch. I want to briefly touch on your national work that you did in uh, with national television broadcasts. I know you did some work on uh, the NBC Game of the Week and then the Baseball Network channel with uh, Pete Van Weer in the playoffs, Braves and Rockies, 95, I believe. Yes. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And Pete, Pete's another one of those guys that was really easy to work with and, and also very well prepared. I was kind of uh, hoping that uh, that opportunity would lead to a national job and instead it led to the dugout. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure, right? <laughs> We're going to take a quick break and come right back and uh, finish our conversation and talk about the managerial days here with Larry Durker on Astro Talk. Back in just a moment. Take your business to higher ground with Capismo Communications. Capismo provides phone systems, IT management, cloud services, cabling infrastructure, internet connectivity, and podcast studio services. All the communications your business needs to be successful. Get unprecedented knowledge and impeccable reliability with Capismo Communications. Visit capismo.com. Make sure to visit the Houston City Beat store today on HoustonCityBeat.com. Find exclusive products that'll kick your Houston pride into gear. Check out the latest releases and come back often to see the latest editions. Just go to HoustonCityBeat.com and click on HCB store on the menu. Shop the Houston City Beat store today because only Hugh can wear it so well. You're listening to Astro Talk with Mike Acosta and Gerald Sanchez. 
We're back on Astro Talk. Mike Acasso along with Gerald Sanchez. And this segment is brought to you by Vito's Chill and Grill. Let them plan and cater the event of your dreams. Visit Vito's Chill and Grill online at vitoschillandgrill.com. We're talking today with Larry Durker here on Astro Talk. And we love this conversation we've been having with him so far. And we talk about his pitching career, his broadcast career, his front office career that he has with the Astros and some of the national work that he's done in broadcasting. And now we, we move along to 1996 in October. And, you know, the Astros are, you know, they call you in and you get a call and you start a little string of conversations with Jerry Hunsicker, the the general manager of the Astros at the time, and then Tal Smith, who is the president of the Astros. And eventually you're talking about the status of the Astros with Drayton McClain, the owner of the Astros. And that, that really leads to a very surreal day. Kind of walk us through that moment in October of 1996 for you, Larry. Well, in 19, uh, in, during the summer of 1996, I had a cast on my right hand the entire season. I had injured my thumb in a skiing accident right before spring training. And I could play golf with it. I could do a lot of things with it, but I couldn't punch a button to open a car door or turn the ignition. So by the time the uh, doctors came down, they usually come down toward the end of spring training and check on everything. And I talked to one of them, and they said, oh, well, you've got a steep hole thumb. But what's that? He said, you pulled a ligament away from the bone in your thumb. Okay, well, what? Well, when we get back to Houston, you know, we'll fix it. So I had uh, surgery, and then they put a cast on my arm. And by the time it was time to take the cast off, uh, my thumb had gotten bigger and red and hot. And what had happened was that I had gotten an infection underneath the cast and in the incision, and it had gotten down to the bone. So I had to give myself these uh, nuclear-level infusions wow. twice a day, 12 hours apart, just as the strongest medicines, whatever you call them, for infection, antibiotics. And so, you know, I had to, that bag hanging from the broadcast booth, I had it hanging from the airplane. You know, I, <laughs> I had to go through that for about six weeks. And, and so then it, it took the cast off. I can't remember why I put the cast back on. Anyway, uh, I didn't get uh, free of it until late September. And so I have a whole year full of scorebooks where I'm writing left-handed. And uh, you can actually read them because I didn't scribble real fast like I do right-handed. They look <laughs> like they were done by a kid in grammar school. But <laughs> anyway, uh, when this season was over, what I wanted to do and what I did was to go up and visit a friend in Austin and float down the Guadalupe River with my hand in the cold water <laughs> because it had been hot and itchy all year long and uh, we, we had really caved in in September that year, which is how I got the manager's job. Is that I think we went into a record uh, losing streak uh, after being only a couple of games out at the beginning of September. And so that did Terry Collins in. And my wife called me after the first day of the Guadalupe and said, you need to get back to Houston. Tal wants to see you in the morning. And I went, oh, come on, Judy. <laughs> he said it was really important. Okay. So we start off in his office in the Galleria. And 
he wanted to know what I thought about the team and what, what he thought would be a good course of action for the offseason. And I wasn't really on, I wasn't aware of what this was leading to because he had uh, pulled me aside a number of times over the years and had the same conversation. So this one, I guess, was more important because I had to come back and do it that morning. Anyway, after a while, uh, <laughs> he said, well, I've asked uh, Jerry to come in and join us for lunch. So Jerry Hunsaker, the general manager, came in. They brought sandwiches. And it started talking more and more about what my philosophy would be if I managed the team. And that's when I started becoming suspicious. And then I looked through the glass doors of the lobby, and, and Drayton McClain, the owner, was there. And that's when I knew that they were going to ask me about managing, and I felt like I, I had to make my mind up, but I wasn't decisive about it, and I was just, well, to see what happens. And so they did offer me the job and said that Jerry would call. I said I wanted to talk to my wife, and, and um, they said Jerry would call me that night because the press conference was scheduled for tomorrow morning. And so it was that fast. <laughs> wow. Guess what, Larry? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, this was already after Terry Collins had been fired, though, right? Well, they did it at the same time. They, they had a press conference, and they said that Terry had been relieved of his duties, and that the new uh, Astros manager is in this room. Well, I was a meet, I was a broadcaster, so there weren't any managers <laughs> in the room. <laughs> so that was a that was a pretty good line, and I think. Uh, media liked it. It was a fascinating story. It was a, became a national story because nobody had ever come from the booth down to the dugout with no experience coaching anything. I felt like I, I wouldn't forgive myself if I chickened out. And I did think I had some ideas that might be helpful. And uh, if I didn't agree to do it then, I'd never have another chance. So I, to me, it was, a, it was really an easy decision. But what was kind of funny about it is that the night before, after they offered me the job, I went to watch my son play a, a baseball game, and we sat in the stands with all the other parents like we always did, and then went home. Well, the next night, uh, he had another game. Well, it had already been announced that I was going to be the Astros manager. The TV stations were out in a, our front yard, and I was being interviewed, and the kids were jumping around behind me so they could be on TV. And it was really a big deal. So we went out to his game that night, sitting in the same bleachers. All of a sudden, uh, everybody from all over the complex was coming up wanting to take pictures and get autographs. <laughs> so you're the manager. In so, 19 <laughs> yeah, I have to back up just a little. My first year to broadcast, I was only 32 years old. I was younger than a few of the guys on the team, and the Phillies had an old team at that time. I was younger than probably six or seven of the guys on their team, and so I looked like I could still play. So we got off the bus in uh, Philadelphia to walk into the stadium, and one of the kids that was there in an autograph line pointed at me, and he said, didn't you used to be somebody? <laughs> Last I look, I still am, right? <laughs> so I talked to uh, our broadcast director, Jamie Hildreth, about that, and he would remind me occasionally we'd have a laugh. Then after uh, after the, the, the scene with the, uh, in the 
conference, uh, I saw Jamie, and I said, hey, Jamie. Yeah. He said, remember uh, how I used to be somebody? I went from being somebody to nobody, and now I'm somebody again. <laughs> You know, Larry, you mentioned uh, Jamie Hildreth, and, and we were talking about the the other uh, greats that you worked with in the broadcast booth, like Gene Elson, Milo Hamilton, Bill Brown, Dwayne Stats, Jerry Trupiano, those guys. Uh, but Jamie was one of those guys that, that really, really had a, a huge impact on Astros broadcast for, for a number of years. Uh, and, and was also, I know, he was, he was the one who hired me with the Astros back in 1999. And he had such an impact. Here. Well, he was a great guy. You know, we, we lost him too early, but, you know, that's something we can't control. But he loved Astros baseball so much. I had met him at U of H during the early part of my pitching career because he was uh, uh, going to school out there at the time, as was Bill Orell. And uh, when I was 18, I used to go out there uh, when the team was at home and, and hang out in the student center and have lunch and, and trying to meet people my own age because uh, I think the next youngest guy on the team was 23, and then most of the guys were 30 or, or older. And uh, so I met Bill and I met Jamie out there. And so anyway, uh, I've known him for a really long time, and I knew how much he loved the sport, and especially Mickey Mantle. He was obsessed yeah. with Mickey Mantle. Yeah. But. The sport in general and Astros history was familiar with all that stuff. And uh, he he changed things because uh, his love of the game affected his uh, decision-making in terms of uh, organizing the broadcast, who was going to do it. He was uh, great with sponsors because he had a really unique sense of humor. Uh, I just wish I he was still around. Yeah, yeah. I think we yeah. all, you know, uh, for those for those of our listeners who do, who do not know Jamie Hildreth, he was the director of broadcasting for the Astros. He worked in Houston radio for a number of years. Came over from KTRH as a sales director and came over to the Astros. Nineteen eighty-seven. Nineteen eighty-seven. Uh, when Bill Brown actually came on board, and and uh, he he then moved up. He was a senior vice president by two thousand seventeen when he passed away suddenly at spring training in February of that year. And and the one thing that I thought about, you know, the Astros won the World Series that year, and I'm like, man, Jamie. Jamie's here in spirit. I know he is, and he's he's saying a toast yeah. tonight. Well, I remember, finished. you know, Jamie said we're, we're good enough to win this year. Yes, but you know, for, before yeah. you know, passing in 2017, that's what he said. Yeah. So yeah. he was he was a great great mentor. Uh, did a lot for everybody that he met, and uh, you know, he's maybe not a name because he's not out there on the air every day. Right. Uh, but he 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 certainly could have been. I mean, this was a guy who could have talked. I mean, we talked Astros baseball constantly. But, uh, and you know, one, one quick thing I'm going to mention, I remember in my first year when I was working in the broadcast booth with the Astros as an intern, during those high moment, like big moment type things, uh, when the crowd was in it and they were yelling, Jamie would walk into the Astros. He did it in 99. He also did it in 2000. 
and he would recreate that scene from the movie Airplane, where everything was about to to go down. The crowd was on its field. There was a big moment happening. You know, Milo was pumping it up. He was building to that big moment. And Jamie in the back of the booth would come in, and he would look at myself and Mike Cannon, who was the, the producer engineer, Mike the Loose Cannon, and he goes, I just want to say to you all, good luck. We're all counting on you. <laughs> and, then he would just, and then he would close the door and walk out. And, and it was just it was just a thing to kind of to kind of break, to kind of slow down the game and and really break just the have, tension, yeah, break the tension. And yeah. it was such a great thing. He was really great at that. So, Larry, in 1997, 98, 99, you guys won the you're, you're now have realignment in the mid 90s and you win the central division title in the National League three times in a row after not being the Astros hadn't been in the playoffs since 1986. The 98 team wins 102 games, a record that stood for 20 seasons. You you have guys like Craig Biggio, Jeff Bagwell, Derek Bell, Moises Alou, and you had really great pitching. Mike Hampton, Shane Reynolds. I mean, it was from top to bottom, the, the teams that you had – were were just fantastic, and then they get this trade at the trade deadline, right before the trade deadline, bringing in Randy Johnson in '98. So, when you have a, a club like that, how do you manage all of that talent at one time? Uh, well, <laughs> and, uh, it's not an easy answer. I, I don't think. I could sum that up <laughs> in a few words, uh, because. At one point, somebody asked me what the toughest thing about managing was. And I said, nothing. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? What do you mean? I said, well, a lot of things happen during the course of the game, and there are a lot of times when it might be appropriate to call for a bunt or a hit and run or a steal, and a lot of times it may be time when you feel like maybe you should make a pitching change. But then most games, if you don't do anything, work their way into a situation where they're pretty close late in the game. And I had noticed uh, Buck Rogers in Montreal. At one point, I think they won 10 straight extra inning games, but it just seemed like he he kept resisting the temptation to use a strategy. He just did nothing and let the game play out. But when you're in the front of that dugout and you have a chance to change pitchers or steal a base, it's really hard to make yourself not do it. And uh, so that was the hardest thing was to have that kind of patience to, to let the players play. But when you have the kind of players you just mentioned, just letting them play is going to win most games. And so I, I tried not to overmanage is what I said. And yeah, they were great. And, and Randy was frankly unhittable all throughout the time we had him. The next year, though, we didn't have him. And the next year, we lost Moises Alou, uh, and he never made it back the whole season. We had uh, uh, Richard Udago was hurt. I think we had Carl Everett in center, and he managed to stay well. Uh, whoever else was hurt, I remember having Bill Spires and uh, Vigio playing in the outfield at least half the time in September. And that was the same uh, year that I had the seizure and brain surgery, and I was out for a month. 
So given all of those things that could have worked against us, I felt like I did a better job and we did a better job playing through uh, all of those things in 99 when we won 97 games than in 98 when we won 102 games uh, and everybody was pretty much healthy. But the thing that I think that the pitchers, the starting pitchers were good in 99, uh, great. A couple of them had you know 20-game years. I think we had two, Lima and Hampton. The other thing was Biggio and Bagwell and Billy Wagner were solid all year long. And it's such a blessing if you're a manager and you have a closer like Billy Wagner because you can bring him in with a one-run lead and you don't have to be right up on the rail biting your fingernails. I mean, you can sit back and be pretty sure you're going to win that game. So 99 for me was a special year, and actually it became even better uh, on the last day of the season. They had a, uh, a promotion for the fans to vote for an all-Astrodome team, and I was named as one of the starters. Uh, so they told me that they were, we, we were all going to come out on the field after the game. They, they brought guys in from out of town. I can't remember who all was there, but I do know that we had players from four different generations or four different decades uh, were out there on the field after the game. Well, to set that thing up, we had a one-game lead on the Reds going into that game. And... If we lost and they won, it was a Sunday game. We were going to have to, uh, they were coming here, we were going there. And we were going to have to have a playoff game on Monday. So I'm down in the dugout as that game starts, and I'm thinking, if we lose and they win, I do not want to go on the field and be honored and, and be given something and have fans uh, cheer for the all Astrodome team because, I'm not going to be in the mood for that if we have to play a, a playoff game the next day. But fortunately, we won the game. And, oh, that was for me. Uh, pitching on my 18th birthday and pitching a no-hitter were really important milestones for me personally. But that game, the fans stayed in the stands for probably 45 minutes. The players stayed down there, too. They were riding motorcycles around, smoking cigars, pouring champagne everywhere. There was confetti coming down from the roof of the Astrodome. And from a team standpoint, my fondest memory of the Astros is what happened that day during the game and afterwards. Yeah, that was a really great game. That was October 3rd, 99. And... Every because you had all those players from the all-time Astrodome team, they were all up there on the club level. Willie Nelson was there. He's saying, "Turn out the lights yeah, on the field." Turn out the lights. The party's over. Yeah. And, and I you think that... too soon because we <laughs> lost the games to the Braves later and got knocked out. Yeah. Out the yeah. And having yeah. Willie Nelson there—that was a Jamie Hildreth production. To to have Willie Nelson there, he had to make sure that he was going to be there to sing that. We have three questions. From fans, yeah, we have some questions from our uh, from the Houston City Beat Facebook group that I wanted to go back over. One of the questions is from Mary Finger, 
And uh, she just simply asked, what was the motivation or inspiration that drew you to a career in baseball? I think maybe it might be apparent, but p- perhaps it's not. Well, I, I know Mary. She's a great lady. A really yeah. big Astros fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, what drew me to baseball was having fun. In fact, it's, it's sort of the same uh, mentality as when it came up about the Hawaiian shirts. So we you know, <laughs> need to stop being so serious and relax a little bit and, and enjoy the sport. Well, when I, I for one thing, uh, one thing that may have been a, I don't know, a foretelling of later events. When I was uh, seven years old, I went with my father to uh, City Park where they were having tryouts for a brand new Little League. We just went down there to watch because you had to be eight years old to qualify. But after they had, I guess, tried out the kids, I'm not sure, you know, what the vetting process was for the kids that got in. But I, what I do know is that when they finished, they still needed two more players to have enough players for all the teams. And so someone looked at me and said, well, that kid's pretty tall. You know what? Well, how come he didn't try out when I'm only seven? Well, can you play? Yeah, I can play. <laughs> And so I got to start my baseball career at the age of seven instead of waiting until I was eight. The reason that I was drawn to it is because I had success. You know, I, was, I wasn't like, let's say, Daryl Kyle, who was a little guy and then shot up six inches between his junior and senior year of high school and added about 10 miles an hour to his fastball. I was always one of the tallest, if not the tallest kids, and I could always throw harder than all the rest of the pitchers, uh, all the way from little leg all the way up through high school. So if, if you're really good at something like that, and it could be anything, you know, anything in the world, that you, you're going to be drawn to it if you have a talent for it. So it was, it was just natural for me to just, Tom Coppa might be a familiar name to you as well. He used to do a lot of the memorabilia shows down in the Dome Skeller of the Astrodome. He wanted to know, how did you get your uniform number? Was it luck of the draw? Did you want it or some kind of special significance? How did you get number 49? I don't know. I think it was just luck of the draw. I didn't really have any affinity uh, for that particular number, but... When I went to the Cardinals that last year, I didn't pitch much because I had arm trouble, but they had 49 available, so I wore it there. And then when I went back down to the field, it was still available. And uh, so I had it again. So I had it my whole career at 49. Uh, unfortunately for those coming behind me, that number is no longer available. That's right. They retired at the Astros. Retired in 2002. Yeah, I think off the top of my head, Juan Augusto also won 49 in yeah. between your yeah. your playing days and your okay. managerial yeah, days. Yeah, he did. <laughs> yeah, in between. Yes. yes, yes. And we got one more question. We're uh, we're a little low on time here. We're one more question from Greg Randolph, and Greg Randolph has a, a question that is related to a little bit more to broadcasting. He wanted to know. How do you read a drop-in on the air without actually making it sound like you're reading? Um, you paraphrase. Uh, mm-hmm. You just if you can read it, and uh, at the same time, 
usually reading the same drop-in, like it may be uh, a, about an upcoming cap day or, you know, any kind of promotion. And so after you read it once or twice, you can just kind of do it in your own words. And I guess it's more conversational. More right. Yeah, it right. becomes a little bit more conversational like the broadcast sometimes, is baseball. Sometimes you can ad lib them. Oh, yeah. And uh, sometimes you can create your own promotion, which I did one time in Pittsburgh. It was early 80s. We had a pretty good team. And the Oilers were having trouble with the Steelers. And so I started about a week or 10 days ahead of time and asked people to come out to the Dome on Tuesday because we were going to play the Padres or something like that. Maybe, no, I think we're going to play the Pirates. And so we're going to show these people in Pittsburgh that we know how to wear our colors, too. <laughs> and so it, it wasn't a team promotion. It was just something that I encouraged fans to do, and it worked. <laughs> you didn't have to have a ticket stub. You didn't have to have a label from Coca-Cola. You didn't have to do anything except wear something orange. We got a big crowd, and we were orange. Yeah. Well, Larry, uh, Gerald and I want to thank you for being on Astro Talk. We truly appreciate the the conversation and and talking about your career and all of the great things that you have done uh, for the Astros and in baseball all the way back to your high school days. We really appreciate the conversation. And so do I. It was fun. That's Larry Durker, everybody, Astros legend, Mr. Astro, if you will. Stay tuned. Gerald and I will be right back in just a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to Astro Talk, brought to you by HoustonCityBeat.com. Take your business to higher ground with Capismo Communications. Capismo provides phone systems, IT management, cloud services, cabling infrastructure, internet connectivity, and podcast studio services. All the communications your business needs to be successful. Get unprecedented knowledge and impeccable reliability with Capismo Communications. Visit capismo.com. Make sure to visit the Houston City Beat store today on HoustonCityBeat.com. Find exclusive products that'll kick your Houston pride into gear. Check out the latest releases and come back often to see the latest editions. Just go to HoustonCityBeat.com and click on HCB store on the menu. Shop the Houston City Beat store today because only Hugh can wear it so well. You're listening to Astro Talk with Micah Costa and Gerald Sanchez. That will do it here for this episode of Astro Talk presented by Houston City Beat. Larry Durker. Boy, that was a great conversation. It really was. Learned a couple of new things. The broadcast segment and how he transitioned from broadcast in his meeting with Tal Smith and then eventually Drayton McClain that we'd like you to be the next manager. You just never know where baseball is going to take you in a career. I don't think that when he started out at 18 years old, he never envisioned himself becoming a major league manager. No, and I don't think anybody else did coming from the broadcast booth with no coaching experience before to being a manager. And then his first year managing, you couldn't write the script any better. They win the division, get swept by the Braves. But then the next year, 98, they win a, a franchise record 102 games at the time and almost get to the World Series. And they were a really good ball club during the time that he was a manager. And then the transition from the Dome to Enron Field. Yes, Enron Field and all the 
the little things that happened then, you know, he got to see the Colt 45s transition to the Astrodome and then the Astros transition to Enron Field and just the different ends of the spectrum in these ballparks that he has seen. 40-plus years here in Houston baseball. Larry Durker has been a part of it. He's done it all in baseball, and we want to thank him once again for joining us on Astro Talk. That'll do it for this edition of Astro Talk. I want to thank everybody here. Alyssa, who is here on on-site engineer for Astro Talk. Gerald Sanchez. I'm Mike Acosta from Capismo Communications in Houston, Texas. This has been another edition of Astro Talk presented by Houston City Beat. Until next time, so long, everybody. You've been listening to Astro Talk, a Houston City Beat production. Visit HoustonCityBeat.com today.